Good morning. As you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles. I was so ready to get up here, I forgot to turn, put my mic on. I realized I was up here. I was like, oh, I was, I was ready to just get into God's Word, I hadn't, so forgive me. <clears throat> well, I, first of all, before we jump in, I just want to say how encouraged I am uh, just to piggyback off of what Jelana was, sh- was sharing, that, that we are a singing people. Um, I... I'm here most Sundays, but occasionally I have the opportunity to go to other, other congregations and th- the volume and the intensity and the passion in which this local body and this family pours out our praise to God is such an encouragement to me, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. And just like what Jelana was saying, I want to piggyback on that, that what we do in singing and what we do in, in bringing praise to the Lord is, it's not like a little mini Christian concert before the sermon. It is congregational. It's meant to be done together. It's meant to be done collectively so that when there are times when you walk into this space, into this sanctuary, and you don't feel like pouring out praise to God, It is an encouragement to you to have brothers and sisters in Christ, in the faith, who can encourage you in song, knowing you are not alone, that we are a people together, that we can lift up our voices and sing these wonderful truths that encourage us in the faith. And so, uh, church, I just want to say thank you for being a people that just pour out your praise to the Lord. I can hear you, I get to a front row seat week after week to hearing God's people just spill out their voices and praise to God. And it is a joy. Um, so church, keep doing that and know that when you do that, it's not just for you. It's, it's, it's collective, it's corporate. That's why we call this corporate worship. It is the people of God singing the truths of God together so that we can be encouraged and remember, even when you don't feel like it, you're, you're reminded, my brothers and sisters are building me up in the faith. So thank you, um, Jelana, that was a great word. Now, if you have your Bibles, would you grab them, open up to Exodus 34 this morning. We're gonna be continuing in our series in Exodus. I'm excited about this morning. We're gonna be looking at something that's just truly wonderful. We're gonna be looking at today the mercy of God, the mercy of God. And just to catch you up a little bit on where we've been and where we've been walking in Exodus chapter 32, Israel, God's people, uh, they had gone astray. They'd gone astray. They made for themselves, if you remember, if you've been with us or you know the story, they made for themselves an idol, a golden calf, and they worshiped this golden calf while Moses was communing with God, was with God in this cloud, hearing from the Lord up on the mountain. And the Lord had to judge them for their idolatry when Moses came back down. So the Lord placed judgment and he placed a curse and many died Uh, when Moses came back down because of this idolatrous worship and they did not turn to the Lord, so many died. Um, But we also know that many were spared. So they broke the covenant. They broke the fellowship with God and God's judgment came, but many, 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 many were spared and were back and were being called back into fellowship with God. Um, And then he tells them, if you remember, as we went on into Exodus 33, 
this troubling statement that Michael unpacked last week. He says, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. So that was this real tremendous problem that we were dealt with last week. So God just said, I'm not going with you. And we learned last week, and Moses is like, well, I don't want the promised land if the presence of God is not with me. And so Moses goes back up on the mountain, and here we have Moses as the mediator, the one that is interceding on behalf of this idolatrous, rebellious, sinful people. Moses goes back up and pleads with God that God would forgive them and pleads with God that God would uh, avert spiritual disaster for these people and even physical disaster for these people, for this stiff-necked people. Now, before we get into this text, I just, I wanna frame what we're gonna be looking at a little bit um, with this statement and this, this question. Um, the question is this, with whom should we have the most affinity for in this chapter? Or who should we relate to the most as we are reading this narrative? Who are we in this story? Because a lot of times I know that we like to get to application and we like to sort of identify with certain people and identify with these certain characters. So who are we and where, what, what is going on here? Well, I want us to cling to this reality as we are looking in this text, as we look at Moses interceding for Israel, that we are not Moses in this story. We are not communing with the presence of God on the mountain, we're meant to see ourselves as Israel. We are waiting anxiously in hope that a mediator, that someone would go before God on our behalf and secure for me, a sinner, the mercy of God. Anxiously waiting and hoping, oh, may the mercy of God come. I know I wandered, I know I fell, I know I bowed to that idol, and I know I'm broken, and I need a mediator, I need someone to come on my behalf. We're Israel in this story, not Moses. This passage is sometimes misused to provide maybe some instruction, albeit uh, well-meaningd on how to pray. You know, you're up in the cloud with God, how to have a quiet, a great quiet time that's electric. Um, Literally, but church, we're Israel. We're down at the bottom of the mountain and the tablets have just been ground into stone and we're waiting and we're trembling and we're hoping that Moses can go and intercede on our behalf and that God would go with us each step of the way because we desperately need him. We desperately need him. So Moses here is a great mediator, he is a great intercessor, and he secures the mercy of God for God's people. And that's exactly the question that Exodus 34 answers for us today. To whom is God merciful? To whom is God merciful and to whom is he not? You ever pondered that question? We're gonna get a glimpse 
into that. So I'm gonna read a big chunk of scripture. So there's gonna be a lot here. We've been doing that week after week and we're sort of, uh, we, I've been saying maybe building up our spiritual muscles a little bit to hear long readings of the word of God because I think it's healthy. I think it's really important, especially as we're going through these narratives, not to just take little, little snippets out, but just to, to sit in this whole narrative to get an understanding of exactly what's happening. So I'm gonna read the first 28 verses of Exodus 34. They'll be on the screen behind me, or you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, so he's back up on the mountain, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the word, the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to, the, to Mount Sinai and present yourself there, me, there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all you people. I will do marvels as such as not been seen or created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom, among whom you are among, who, among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I have commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited and you eat of his sacrifice and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any god cast of metal. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Seven days you shall, you shall eat unleavened bread as I've commanded you. At the time appointed in the, in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. 
All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and sheep, the firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or you shall not redeem it. You shall break its neck. All of the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, the feasts of ingathering. At the year's end, three times a year, shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up and appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, you shall not offer blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so he was with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, and he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So these 28 verses, there was a lot in there. We are not gonna have time to unpack all that was just communicated because there was so much there. But in these 28 verses, you can divide them into three sections, and I'm gonna quickly go through these three sections, and I'm gonna circle back around to the first for the remainder of our time. But the first is this, God's character is revealed to God's people, to Moses and in turn God's people. The second thing is God's covenant is restored. And the third, God's commandments are restated. They're restated. So we're gonna quickly go through this. So the first, uh, verses one through seven, we see God's character revealed here at the very beginning. This is amazing. Remember the end of Exodus 33 last week, Moses asks the Lord, will you show me your glory? Or as Michael said, and remind us, will you show me your face? Will you show me who you are, God? Show me exactly who you are? And he, he, he gets a glimpse of the backside or the afterglow of the glory of God because he, can't, he cannot gaze upon the glory of God or he will die. So he gets an afterglow of this as God puts him in the cleft of the rock in this, that beautiful picture. <clears throat> but what he saw, which is amazing here, and we constantly see this as we're walking through Exodus is actually what he heard, what was proclaimed to him. So seeing is often, though we long for seeing, God's answer for our longing to see is often what he has us hear. And we see that again. We see that again here. Exodus 33, 19 says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The proclamation of God goes forth. So our longing to see is met with the proclamation of who God is. Right? Isn't that beautiful? And now Moses, again, here, as he's up on the mountain, interceding for this rebellious people, is again going to see by hearing. 
He's gonna see by hearing. And this is the way the Bible works. Um, as God's people, we often see him by hearing him. How? Because of God's revealed word, his truth, his revelation. God reveals himself again and again and again, and he does so more fully and even more completely as we have the other side of the cross. We've been given Christ Jesus, and we've been given the revealed word of God to us, so we get to see him through hearing from him by him giving us exactly who he is and exactly what he's like by giving us the verbal declaration, the verbal proclamation that is written down now for us as God's people that shows us his nature, that shows us his character, that shows us what he's like, and he shows us what he's calling us into, and where we're headed, and where we're going. It's beautiful. It's the same in Exodus, and it's the same for you and I today. And he reveals to him this amazing statement about his character through this proclamation, through the word of God, a God merciful and gracious Verse six, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the second thing we see in this text, verses eight through 16 in Exodus 34, is God, God's covenant is restored. And Moses again asks, will you go with us? And we finally get a firm answer that God will go with them. And you see at the top of verse 10 in your Bibles, there's kind of, there's some headings in there and a lot of your translations, the ESV translation puts this in here. It just gives us a summary statement. It says the covenant renewed. It probably says that above your verse 10. It says that in my Bible. Well, it is sort of a covenant renewal, but it's, it's, it's not the covenant renewal that we see elsewhere in scripture where God gathers and rallies his people and they all say, yes, we're gonna do this, we're in this. Essentially what we do every Sunday is a covenant renewal ceremony as well with God's people where we open up the word and we sing praises to him Then we leave this place and we say, yes, we're going to do this with you, God. You go before us and we wanna follow you. It's, it's, it's more than that. And why? Because the covenant was actually broken. They bowed down and worshiped another God right when God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, the covenant that Moses brought down on the tablets written down for his people, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, were thrown down, cracked, and then ground into dust, and then poured water on them, and then Moses made them all drink it to show the depths of the depravity of their sin. It was like, whoa. And then, Mo and then last week we learned God's like, I don't know if I'm coming with you. So it's more than a renewal. It's like a covenant reconstitution. Um, notice again, God makes big promises as this covenant is being reconstituted in verse 11. He doubles down. He, he doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to treat his people with such favor and grace and mercy. He says, I'm gonna drive out the nations as he's promised before. And then in verse 10, he says, I will do marvels. And he goes on to explain what that means. They've already seen such amazing, wondrous things. And he says, you're gonna see marvels that you can't even fathom. Think about what God's people had already witnessed, had already walked through, had already seen with their own eyes. They, I mean, they'd seen 
water from a rock. They'd seen manna from heaven, quail falling down from heaven, like feeding them when they were hungry. Water when they're thirsty. They've seen the Red Sea parted and they walked on dry ground. They've seen the plagues rain down against the idolatry of the Egyptian people to free God's people so that they could have this salvation in life with God who called them his people. They'd seen miraculous things and he doubles down. He says, you're gonna see marvelous things. But when you make a covenant with God, we see again, it must be exclusive. And so in verses 12 through 16, warn of the dangers of compromise, of syncretism, of saying, I'll have a little bit of him, I'll have a little bit of this one over here, and I'll have a little bit of this God over here. I want the God of money. I also want the God of comfort. I want the God of power. I want the God of control. I want to do all of, and also the God of the Bible, because he's really important, and he uh, I also want to have him. And so we're going to kind of take a God of our own liking and fashion him together. That's called idolatry. And we've just learned over and over again that God will have none of that. So we learn what it means to have him and him alone. And so he reconstitutes this covenant. And he says, essentially, that we are to forsake any other God. We're to have no other God. Um, the f- most familiar covenant that we sort of have an understanding for is the covenant of marriage. And we use the same language in marriage, right? When you stand before as you're in this covenant ceremony with the one you were about to enter into this covenant with, we say the same words. And it sounds like a negative word. We say forsaking all others. And in any other context, Forsaking all others is a bad thing. But in the context of marriage covenant, it's a good thing. Meaning this, my eyes are only for you. My love is exclusive for you. My love for you in this way, in this covenant shaping way that God has for me is only for you. And I'm gonna walk in it with God's help. God is saying the same thing to his people. It's a covenant. And I'm a jealous God. And I will not have you running after others. You're just for me. And I'm just for you. And I am enough for you. You don't need to look after all these other things to satisfy or to give you all the things you think you need. You can look just to me. Forsake all others. You should have eyes for no one else. So it is with the covenant with God. And then God Here's the prayers of Moses, and he essentially says, I will give them another chance. He's almost like saying, welcome back. His mercy. I've heard your prayers. A mediator, Israel, has stood in your place, and I will go with you, and the covenant will be restored, and I will walk with you, and I will drive out the other nations. I will expand your borders, and I will be with you as your God and you as my people. Um, and then we have the third scene, Exodus, 3, 7, or Exodus 34, 17 through 28. And it's God's commandments are restated. So if you've been with us for the last 194 weeks that we've been walking through Exodus, 
Uh, I'm just kidding, although it sometimes feels that way. Uh, these, some of these will sound familiar. So we're not gonna walk through each of these. Uh, go back and listen, because a lot of these are, are restated verbatim. Uh, and they should sound familiar if you've been with us. But these commandments that we see that are given to Moses to bring down to God's people are getting to the heart of the matter of what it means to be God's people. Um, and it seems kind of strange to us, but that's what they're about. It's about the heart. A lot of times we're like, well, the Ten Commandments are not about the heart. Well, they're about the heart because essentially, what, remember what's just transpired? Now God reinstitutes his covenant with them and then he brings them down and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remind you of what the covenant is that we're entering into. And he says, do you trust me enough to put away all these other gods? Do you trust me enough to put away all these other things that you run to for your comfort, for your safety, for your security, for the things that you think you need that you're gonna get in all these other illegitimate ways? Do you trust me and me alone enough to put all of your chips in on me? And when things get scary or when things go unknown, you will not go fashion for yourself or make for yourself a God of your own liking to say, I know the way out. Do you trust me enough? It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Um, to worship where I've commanded, how I've commanded you, to give to me the first fruits from your flock, the first fruits from your harvest, the very best in the first, not the leftovers, but the very first things. Do you trust me enough to do that? That's what he's just got done rehashing as he's, re, he's restating the commandments of God. And I was struck by verse 21. Verse 21 says, in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. Um, I can get behind resting when there's time to rest. I can get behind sort of having some downtime when I need a break or it's like, you know, or there's, there's ample opportunity to do that. And it's like, okay, let's take a breath. Let's kind of do that. But God oftentimes, uh, his commandments go out the window when things are pressing in and there are things to be done and there are things that if they don't get done, it will impact me in a very tangible way. It will impact my livelihood. It will impact whatever it may, whatever I, you know, a lot of different things. And this is essentially what he's saying. He says, when you're plowing, remember this agrarian society. They've come from slave labor in Egypt. They were in charge of harvesting and plowing and having food and making sure there was enough for all the millions of people that were with them in the wilderness. And God says, when you're plowing in the busiest time of the year, when everything is on the line and there's a small window to get the seed in the ground and there's a small window that you can work, 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 work to increase the fruitfulness, to increase the yield right in that season. When you're plowing, rest in me. Do you trust me enough to rest in me then? And when you're harvesting, 
when you're actually seeing the fruit of your labor coming up from the ground and it is ripe for picking and you can gather it and you can store it and you'll be able to feed your family and you'll be able to feed your loved ones and you'll be able to feed your community when there is the harvest that is growing from the labor that your hands have made. Even then, in those times when I command you to rest in me, do you trust me enough to stop working? rest and remember me and say, God, you have me. You will not leave me. You will not forsake me. I can rest in you. I don't have to work my fingers to the bone because I know you will provide for me. Even when we're plowing and even when we're harvesting. Lord, I long to and I need to and I want to remember and worship you. Those are the hardest times to worship and remember him, aren't they? When you're wondering, oh, are we gonna have enough to eat? Are we gonna have enough to pay for college? Are we gonna have enough to fill in your blank? We all have something that keeps us up at night, that has us making lists and spreadsheets that we worry about, that we fret over, that we're not sure how it's all gonna happen. So we work and we labor and we work and we labor and we go and we go and we go. He says, trust me. To not, he's not saying cease working. He's not saying advocate your responsibility to be a worker and find worship in it. But one day a week, would you stop and remember and trust me enough to stop working your fingers to the nub for one extra little cubit. That's big. Um, And all of these representative commandments are sufficient to the 10 commandments and the specifics of life that God is giving to his people. And again, I wanna reiterate this. Um, All the way in the beginning in Exodus, it's written down. The covenant is written down. It's revealed truth written down from the mind of God to human hands that are given on tablets of stone that God's people would know and would not be left wandering and the next generation would not have to have another revelation because it's given to them. That's how God operates. And that's how we have our revealed written word that is written down for us. We don't need to, the next generation does not need to be left wondering, what is God like? What is he gonna be like? How do I follow him? How do I know what he's like? How do I know what I'm supposed to be like? How do I know how to live in relationship with one another as a parent, as a spouse, as all of those things? The revealed written word of God is God's MO for how he communicates what he's like and where he's taking us. He is so gracious. His covenant words are recorded. Recorded. Now, the rest of our time, I went too long on that one, I know I would, uh, is Exodus 34 is proof of the mercy of God. The sheer fact that Exodus 34 exists is proof that our God is a God of mercy. God of mercy. So remember, this is the second time he's up on the mountain. We've already gone through the golden calf has been made and been worshiped. The first covenant has been ground up. Um, 
The first covenant, remember in Exodus 19, he says, if you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and then they break the covenant, and all those horrible things happen that we just got done uh, rehashing. So instead of resting in the value of who they were in God, instead of resting as God's covenant people, they went to a God of their own making like we all do so often. We see this pattern in Israel. They were unbelieving at the Red Sea. They were unbelieving in the wilderness as they grumbled. And so here they were unbelieving with a golden calf, yet God is patient. Even Moses describing them as a stiff-necked people, yet God is patient as we see Moses again intervening, interceding on behalf of his people that God doesn't just destroy them. And here we have this wonderful, amazing statement about what the name of God means in Exodus 34. And this statement is quoted all over the rest of our Bible. It, it shows up everywhere. And I wish I had the next hour to show you all the places it shows up because it's so important. Verse six, God cries out, Yahweh, Yahweh, and he spells out exactly what that means. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yahweh, the God who is, the God who is free, the God who is almighty, the God who is merciful, the God who is over all things, above all things, um, bigger and higher than any other God. He's absolute in his existence. He has sovereign rule and control. Um, he is omnipotent, he is all these wonderful things, but he is also overflowing with mercy. Overflowing with mercy. But before we zero in on that for a few minutes, we have a problem to deal with. I don't even notice that, but right after that, what does he say? So after declaring that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, the text goes on, to say seemingly the exact opposite. You're like, oh, that sounds wonderful. And then you get to, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Wait a minute, can we just not read that part? Let's just stick with the overflowing of goodness and mercy and slow to anger. But by no means, that seems pretty clear, clear the guilty. So how can he in one breath be a God who forgives the guilty, the transgressor, the one stumbles into sin and idolatry, yet also not clear the guilty. So the question is, who does he give mercy to and who doesn't he give mercy to? At least that's what I was thinking as I was preparing. This is an important question. And I think the best way to answer this question uh, is to look to the scriptures because we're given the answer in the scriptures that God reveals to us. In fact, Exodus 34, as I said, this passage is quoted over and over and over again, and we get the answer to who God is merciful to and who he is not merciful to in the Old Testament in numerous places. We're gonna look at two of them because of time, Joel and Jonah. Joel and Jonah answer for us this question. It's like, well, wait a minute, who is it? 
So God says this in Joel 2, 12 and 13. It'll be on the screen so you don't have to find where Joel is. He says this to a rebellious people. Yet even now, return to me with all your hearts. This is a sinful people. God's saying, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. So you sinful people, you who have fallen into idolatry, just like these Israelites had just fallen into idolatry, don't just have an outward sign of, Lord, forgive me. Don't just pay me lip service. Don't just rend your garments to say, look how sorry I am. It says, rend your hearts. Turn your hearts. And then we're given the quote of Exodus 34. And he goes on to encourage the people, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In other words, Joel uses Exodus 34, 6 to encourage the people that if they return to the Lord, if they repent from the evil that they had stumbled into, that the Lord will forgive them if they rend their hearts, if their hearts turn back to the Lord, if they don't just pay him lip service, if they don't just tear their garments and say, look at how sorry I am, if they actually turn their hearts in repentance back to this God who is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, they will receive that. It's a turning of the heart, a rending of the heart. I love that word. So Joel understood, Exodus 34, that forgiveness is for the repentant. And that refusal of that forgiveness um, is for the unrepentant. The unrepentant heart, the heart that doesn't turn, that just gives lip service, that maybe tears a garment or just walks away, that forgiveness is not extended to that heart because they're still hard. Jonah sees it the same way. After preaching to the Ninevites, we all know the story of Jonah if you've grown up in the church. Jonah preaches uh, this, this amazing truth about a God who longs to forgive and they repent and God spares them and Jonah is mad about it. Jonah's angry because he does not like these people. He does not think they deserve God's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to be poured upon this wicked people. Do you have anyone like that in your life? Well, I'm not gonna pray for them. I don't want them to be forgiven by a merciful and gracious God. I want that for me. That was Jonah. Jonah's upset about it, and God spares them. And here, Jonah 3, starting in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, repented, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He did not do it, verse, or chapter four, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly. My translation, Jonah was ticked, right? Displeased exceedingly, that's kind of a, wooden sort of way of saying like, I'm really mad, right? He was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why I ran away. For I knew, I knew it, God, that you are a gracious God 
and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were like that, God. That's why I ran away because I didn't want to tell them about that good news about who you were. Jonah quotes Exodus 34 to explain why God had turned his wrath away from a sinful people who repented from their evil way. Church, this is God's nature. It's in his name. Exodus 34, he says, this is what my name means. Jonah agrees with Joel. The Ninevites depended on it. The people that Joel was preaching depended on it. And you and I depend on it. Um, Now we can go back and look at these beautiful statements very quickly as we end here. He will forgive the guilty. He will turn. He will give us his grace when we deserve his judgments. And that's the solution of Jonah and Joel because of a repentant heart. Now we can hear the message of God's mercy in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression for sin. Real quick, I think there's two kinds of people in this room here this morning. Um, One in this room thinks, I'm too far gone. I mean, I've done, my sin is too horrendous. My sin, uh, is too bad to be forgiven. And the other thinks forgiveness is easy and forgiveness is a snap. And forgiveness, I'm a shoo in One thinks I'm utterly disqualified for the kingdom. I'm utterly disqualified for all these things you're talking about, the mercy of God just pouring out that God is slow to anger. Um, I, I, there's no way. And the other thinks, well, I... Yeah, I think I deserve that. I'm a pretty good person. I think I've got a, I'm a shoe in for this mercy that we just described. I understand that. Um, one thinks God is a pushover and the one thinks that God is unrelentingly angry. Now there's a whole nother sermon in that that we don't have time for. But I want to make clear that what I'm about to say is for the person in here who's downcast, who's been humbled, who's broken, who maybe feel hopeless, who may be wondering, "Ah, can he really love me? Who maybe even feel beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Hear these words. And I I think they're all intertwined, that we have five statements that we hear in this, five expressions that we're given in the character of God in this statement. One, a God merciful and gracious. Two, slow to anger. Three, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Four, keeping steadfast love for the thousands. And five, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I think this is a Hebrew structure and it's meant to have us understand the middle being the thesis and the other two sandwiched in there as being all interconnected. And they build upon each other that give us this wonderful understanding that he is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
So the heart of God is abounding, that's the center statement, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, meaning it's inexhaustible, it's abounding, it doesn't run dry. It's like a volcano, that's just, it's a part of who he is on the inside and it erupts and overflows. And we get the benefits of that as God's people, repentant people, love and faithfulness, it's abounding. He is not limited. He never runs out of it. And then in the middle of each side of this middle statement, this thesis statement, you get he is slow to anger. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. And what that's talking about, when God says he keeps steadfast love, it's it's focusing on, I want us to just have this this word picture. The word that's describing here is the durableness of his love. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. It perseveres. It lasts. It cannot be broken. It cannot be used up. It cannot be chewed up. It cannot, it's, it's there. It keeps going. And I see a connection between that perseverance of God's love and the statement that God is slow to anger. His love, um, and because that love lasts, he doesn't have a hair trigger on his anger. He's not ready to just get you. He's not looking to hurt you. He's not looking to come after you. His love lasts. It's durable. It is, it can be counted on. But so so as a result, he's slow to anger. He's not just looking He's not just looking for you to fall and stumble. So God shouts at Mount Sinai, I'm slow to anger people. That's good news from the mountain. He, meaning he holds back his wrath and instead pours out his love. He's long suffering. He is extraordinarily patient. He keeps his steadfast love. He guards it. He preserves it by being slow to anger. And that leads us to the final pair of statements here about God at the top and the bottom as I've understood it. So if God is slow to anger, even though we give him ample reason to be angry with us because of our sin, then he must be merciful. He must be forgiving. That's why we see merciful and gracious. And then at the very end, Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The reason God is slow to anger is not because he doesn't notice our sin, is not because he looks over our sin, is not because he looks past our sin, but because he forgives our sin. And not just some kinds of sin. If you notice, he uses three different words to describe our sin, iniquity, transgression and sin. He piles up these words like he's piling up his love, his mercy, his grace. He says, this is how good I am to you. If you think, oh, I'm too far gone because I have this sin, no. Sin, iniquity, all of it, transgression, I forgive it all. I see it and I forgive it. And I would just wanna close with this reminder. Jesus, our risen Lord, our great mediator, who right now, if you are found in him, if his blood covers you as a Christian, intercedes for you to the Father on your behalf. 
Jesus, our risen Lord, came into this world to confirm that God is just who he said he is, just who he said he is in Exodus 34. A merciful God and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so church, as we bow our heads and as the praise team comes back up, I want us to reflect on our own hearts here this morning for a moment. Because each of us in this room, I believe have somewhere in the recesses of our past, of last week, of last month, of last year, or maybe last night, think that we have things in us that are unforgivable. Surely God couldn't forgive me of that. And so would you just go before the Lord right now? Would you just bow your head and spend some time in repentance? Would we, like Joel, rend our hearts toward God, a merciful God who is slow to anger, that longs to forgive you? Would you turn your heart to this gracious and merciful God? Because of the blood of Christ, now risen and ruling at the right hand of the Father, you can confess that sin that you think is inexcusable and unforgivable. And because the blood of Christ is applied to you, you can say those words in confidence. And he forgives. So go to him in repentance and go to him in thankfulness here this morning.